Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, uh, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you for webyeshiva.org. And I'd like to apologize for our earlier technical difficulties. I've decided to record this class once again today because we were having problems with the internet from Canada. But I am speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, and we are studying Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, the Moren of Uchim. Um, we are in section two, chapter 23. And I'm going to try this again. We've had some missteps, and hopefully, now that I'm doing the recording on my computer and we'll just upload it later, everything ought to work. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had our last class where we studied chapter 22, so allow me to get our bearings so that we can see where we are. We're in the middle of a series of multiple chapters where the Rambam is engaging with Aristotelian philosophy about cosmogony, about the origins of the universe. And in particular, the Rambam threw down the gauntlet in chapter 22 and had to directly oppose the man who, whom he thinks is the greatest philosopher who ever, lives, who ever lived, and that is Aristotle. And in the course of this discussion, what the Rambam has essentially stated is that um, whereas Aristotle was correct in so many of his previous uh, statements about the reality of our universe, he got everything right when it comes to the sublunary world, the matter and everything that exists in our world, the world that we experience. But Aristotle believed, and Maimonides agrees with this as well, that the things that are made up, that comprise the heavenly realm, are of a totally different form of creation, a, a totally different type of existence, a totally different kind of matter. And as a result, since no human being has the opportunity to ascend to the cosmos, all we can do is theorize and not absolutely prove what the cosmos are like, what the celestial realm is like. And because there are so many problems with Aristotle's depiction of the celestial realm, we must reject Aristotle. And in particular, not only does Aristotle subscribe to the idea that the universe has always existed for all of eternity, just like God has, but that the universe in its perfect state, the way we find it, is a necessary emanation from a perfect God, meaning that everything that defines God as a perfect being is manifest in the cosmos. And, and the Rambam has a very serious problem with that, because when we look at the cosmos, we don't see a consistent perfection. We see what, what he called before particularization, where things, some things are one way, some things are another way. We find different collections of star densities in one place and another 
place where there's much less density, we find different forms of motion and so forth and so on. And so the Rambam said, sort of towards the end of this chapter, that because there are fewer problems with the model of creation, uh, that God at some point, uh, a God of volition, brought the world into existence, we must, as philosophers, subscribe to the Torah's account of God creating the world and choosing to create it in, a, in the particular way, the way we find it today. And that theory, that philosophical model, has fewer problems inherent in it than the Aristotelian model of an eternal universe emanating necessarily from, from the Aristotelian deity. That's where we are. But I want to emphasize that the Rambam feels that this can be proven philosophically. He's not basing himself on tradition. He's basing himself purely on the logic of philosophical speculation. In chapter 23, the Rambam takes a bit of a break from Aristotelian philosophy and cosmology. He, he will come back to this. He will discuss some of the problems that are inherent in subscribing to Aristotle's depiction of the, of the, of the cosmos. We'll get back to that. But here we want to take a brief interlude to discuss a more general topic. And that's the topic of what do you do when you encounter a fork in the road as far as which ideology you should subscribe to, which theory you should subscribe to. And sort of this chapter, we could call it the Rambam's advice to the philosopher as to how to decide correctly when you're faced with two conflicting ideas. Um, and um, the Rambam says that I'm going to give you advice that you'll be able to apply not only to this kind of situation as to what the nature of the celestial realm is, but you'll be able to apply it to all different situations in your life, potentially. And so I'd like to delve into the text. The only thing that I am not able to present to you today is the handout that I would normally post on the screen. But if you would like to see the handout, you can go to either the Facebook group Shi'ur in Morenevuchim, and you can see it there, or you can go to the webyeshiva.org course description for this course, and you will be able to find it there. Um, but we won't be referencing the, um, uh, the handout so much inside today, but I'll try and let you know exactly where we are. Let's read the text inside. No, he says, that when, that when one compares the doubts attaching to a certain opinion with those attaching to the contrary opinion and has to decide which of them arouses fewer doubts, one should not take into account the number of the doubts, but rather consider how great is their incongruity and what is their disagreement with what exists. In other words, if I could really paraphrase this, the Rambam is saying it's not a numbers game. It's not like if I have to choose between either X or Y, between the Aristotelian model or the creation model, I just have to count the number of challenges to model X versus the number of challenges to, to model Y, and whichever one has fewer challenges or doubts is the one that I should go with. It's not always quantity. You have to measure qualitatively. Uh, that sometimes one challenge could be far greater of a reason to reject that theory than a thousand. And he writes that. He says, sometimes 
a single doubt is more powerful than a thousand other doubts. It's qualitative. If there is even one doubt that brings you so far afield of what is viable, then sometimes you have to reject that possibility based on that one doubt, despite the multiple doubts that exist on the other side. Furthermore, this comparison can be correctly made only by someone for whom the two contraries are equal. And here the Rambam is going to spend most of this chapter discussing objectivity. And this is the greatest challenge to the philosopher and a, and a question that the philosopher must constantly question himself with. How do I know that when I am making a decision, I am being completely objective? There are always predilections and predispositions based upon my upbringing, based upon my desires, my emotions, and so forth. But whoever prefers one of the two opinions because of his upbringing, or for some other reason, that person will be blind to the truth. While one who entertains an unfounded predilection cannot properly give an objective debate um, on the matter that is susceptible to demonstration, in matters like those under discussion, such an objective debate is often possible. And what I believe the Rambam is essentially saying here is that there are situations in life where it is not possible, even for the finest of philosophers, to completely detach themselves and be completely objective. But in the issue of cosmology and what really exists in the celestial realm, the Rambam says this kind of uh, decision you can arrive at objective truth because you are capable of detaching yourself if you're aware of what the pitfalls and challenges are. And he writes, sometimes if you wish it, you can rid yourself of an unfounded predilection, free yourself of what is habitual, rely solely on speculation, and prefer the opinion that you ought to prefer. However, in order to do this, you must fulfill the following conditions. And, and as we'll see, the Rambam has three conditions that you need in order to arrive at an objective truth. Condition number one, the first of them is that you should know how good your mind is and that your inborn disposition is sound. What the Rambam means by this is that, and he says this becomes clear to you through training in all the mathematical sciences and through grasp of the rules of logic. You have to have a good cup, in other words, is what the Rambam is saying. You have to know that your methodology of thought is correct, which requires a certain grounding in logic, and it also requires a certain um, uh, level of education of knowing how to think and to process data properly. So that's the first, uh, pre, um, that's the first sort of prerequisite that you need. Number two, the second condition is to have knowledge of the natural sciences and to apprehend their truth so that you should know your doubts in their true reality. And that is, number two, you need to know what's real out there. You need to know astronomy. You need to know science. And you need to know it correctly. Uh, in other words, if even if you are the greatest thinker, you're a genius thinker, and you can process data properly, but if you don't know what's out there because you've never studied astronomy, then just observation alone, without careful analysis of the planetary bodies and the stars will cause you to make an error as well. What Rav Kafich says that the Rambam is alluding to over here is that the basic structure of our universe was the subject of debate, as we saw at the end of section one of the, of the guide, between the Mutakalimun, the Kalamists, 
and the Aristotelian philosophers. The Kalamists believed that the world is made up of uniform atoms that make up everything in a contiguous existence. And the Aristotelian philosophers believed that there is different matter that makes up the sublunary realm where we reside, and a different matter making up the celestial realm. And it's not atomic at all, but it's, um, it is uh, holistic. And therefore, if you were to subscribe to a theory of atomism, you would also, no matter how brilliant you are, you would still come up with error because you would not be depicting the universe in its scientific correct, scientifically correct model. So that's prerequisite number two. And the third condition that you should, uh, the third condition concerns your morals. And this is probably the most important condition that you need to fulfill. For whenever a man finds himself inclining, and to our mind it makes no difference if this happens because of his natural disposition or because of an acquired characteristic, but if a person finds himself inclining towards lusts and pleasures or preferring anger, or giving into his emotions and fury, giving the upper hand to his irascible or given to anger faculty and letting go of its reins, he shall be at fault and stumble wherever he goes. And the Rambam is basically saying that morality or ethics plays a distinct role in one's ability to decide and to arbitrate truth accurately. This has been discussed from time immemorial, this dilemma of how do I know that I'm being objective when sometimes my emotions take the front seat and my intellect takes a back seat and it's not even possible to know when that's happening. And as you'll say, you have to always constantly question yourself and keep yourself in check. Um, modern uh, uh, philosophers and psychologists are discussing this issue today as well. You may be familiar with the trolley, pro the trolley problem. What's the trolley problem? Um, it, it goes something like this. It's known as the bystander at the switch uh, of the trolley problem. There is a runaway trolley barreling down the railway tracks. Ahead on the tracks, there are five people tied up and unable to move. The trolley is headed straight for them. You are standing some distance off in the train yard next to a lever. If you pull this lever, the trolley will switch to a different set of tracks. However, you notice that there is one person on the side track. You have two and only two options. You can either do nothing, in which case the trolley will kill the five people on the main track, or you can pull the lever, diverting the trolley onto the side track where it will, where it will kill one person. Which is the more ethical option, or more, or more simply, what is the right thing to do? What, what decision should the person make? The reason why uh, we can put it in even Talmudic terminology. Is it better to be Sheva Altasa to do nothing and allow five people to die through your inaction? Or is it better to proactively kill one person in order to save five people? Now, there may be halachic implications in this discussion, which we're not going to get into right now. But the point of the matter is, is that the reason why this is such a, um, a difficult issue today is because of the advent of artificial intelligence. And scientists are having difficulty uh, providing uh, uh, computers with the ability to decide situations which involve moral dilemmas such as this, especially with the advent of self-driving cars. How do you program the software 
to mitigate this trolley problem in real life. And they are finding that it is necessary not only to provide um, computers with data, with objective truth data, but also with a set of morals. And it's also important to note that morality can change from culture to culture and from historical period to historical period. I'll never forget many years ago when I was in university, we took a course on decision-making, correct decision-making, and one of the classic problems that was uh, presented to us is that uh, you're on a shipwreck, your boat has just is about to sink, and there's a, just one lifeboat, and you're on that lifeboat, and you're on the shipwreck with your mother, your wife and your daughter. It's male-centric, this dilemma. And the question that is posed to the male, which one of the three should you save? What is the correct decision? Should you save your mother? Should you save your wife? Or should you save your daughter? Now, terrible dilemma, of course. But in theory, what's the correct way to make this decision? And what was shown to us is that they did a study many years ago, and they demonstrated that the, there were cultural attitudes that affected moral decision-making. So they went to a group of students from a Western world, a Western culture, and they were fairly divided between saving your wife and saving your daughter. Your wife is your soulmate, your daughter is your progeny. So there's what to be said for both of them. Almost none in the Western culture chose the mother. She's already lived her life and she'd be happy to sacrifice herself for the sake of her son's happiness, either with his wife or with his daughter. But when they asked a group of students from a Middle Eastern culture, almost all of them said that they would save the mother. Why is that? Because you only have one mother, you can always replace your wife and you can have another daughter. So you see that, and, and the question is, what is morally correct, what is morally incorrect? It's not always so clear cut. But what the Rambam is trying to tell us is that proper moral girding of oneself is necessary to keep one's emotions in check. It's not only just a question of what is your moral code that, in, that informs the decision that you're going to make in real life situations, but even trying to arbitrate what is true and what is untrue can sometimes be very clouded based upon one's biases that are a product of what one wants versus what really is or should be. Uh, I'll never forget this Devar Torah that I also studied many years ago uh, in, on Parshat Va'era, which describes the first seven of the ten plagues. At the very end of the Parsha, the Torah discusses the plague of hail, of Barad. And in that plague, Moshe comes, as he did for the prior six plagues, and forewarned Paro, and he said, if you do not let my people go, God is going to bring a horrible plague upon you. And he did the same thing when it came to the hail. And he said to Paro, this hail is going to decimate anything that is left outside in the field. So if you're smart, you'll bring in everything from outside and bring it inside because the hail is going to be devastating. And the Pasuk says as follows. This is in Exodus chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. The Torah says, Hayareyat devar Hashem me'avdei Paro. Anyone who feared God among the servants of Paro, Hainis et avadav ve'et miknehu el habatim, brought in both their servants and their livestock, and brought them indoors. But, next verse, va'asher lo samlibol devar Hashem, but anyone who did not pay heed to the word of God, va'ya'azov et avadav ve'et miknehu basadeh. 
those people left their servants and livestock outdoors. And of course, we know that the tragic result was is that that livestock and those servants were killed by this devastating, extraordinary hail. A number of commentaries ask a very simple question. What if you don't believe in God, but you see this man, Moses, has been correct six for six times. Every time he has come to Paro's court and has predicted that there's going to be a natural disaster, he's been right. Whether or not you believe in God should not be the criterion as to whether you suspect that he may be correct the seventh out of seven times. Just, and what is it, what harm is caused by bringing your animals overnight into, into the barn? Is it such a terrible thing, even if it turns out to be a false alarm? Just bring everyone in. And so uh, Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, known as a stipler gone, wrote, he says, Umikan anu ro'im. From here we see, and I'm just reading from the text of his Sefer Birkat Peretz, Shahakafira einena totza'a machmat chisaron hada'at, that apostasy or, or atheism is not a result of a lack of knowledge, Ela machmat ritzono, but rather it is a it is generated by one's desires. Va'adaraba, and to, if anything, it's just the opposite. Shibush hadat ba'a machmat ta'avato uritzono lichpor, that a person gets intellectually confused because of the emotional drive to live your life a certain way, and what that essentially means is that the, if the Egyptians would have even uh, partially conceded that there may be some truth to Moses's prophecies that would have forced them to admit that their entire ideology of Egypt and its gods and their subjugation of other classes of human beings, all of that was a sham, all of that was wrong. And emotionally, they could not part from the society and culture that they were committed to. And because of that, they convinced themselves against all intellectual soundness, they convinced themselves that Moshe would be wrong this time. And they therefore were willing to even leave their livestock at great personal expense out in the fields. Perfect example of how a person's emotions and drives will sometimes pervert the intellect and will not allow the intellect to emerge to be able to arbitrate the truth. So let's go on from this point. He says, um, so again, the third uh, prerequisite or condition that you need must be a proper moral grounding to make sure that you're not being driven by your lusts and pleasures or your emotions. For he shall seek opinions that will help him in that toward which his nature inclines. I have drawn your attention to this in order that you should not be deceived. For someone may someday lead you into vain imaginings through setting forth a doubt concerning the creation of the world in time, and you may be very quick to allow yourself to be deceived. In other words, you'll encounter someone who is an Aristotelian scholar and will um, scoff at you for accepting an account of creation as it appears in the Bible. And they will belittle you, and they will condescendingly tell you that you're provincial and you're religiously superstitious, and they will make you feel uncertain. And out of your desire, perhaps, to either uh, uh, impress your colleagues in the philosophical community, or perhaps out of your desire to reject the idea of a providential God so that you can do whatever you like in life, you may be driven to do that which is counterintellectual 
and accept the less sound argument of the Aristotelian depiction of cosmology versus that of creation. Okay, for in this opinion is contained the destruction of the foundation of the law and a presumptuous assertion with regard to the deity. In other words, if you do believe in Aristotelian, the Aristotelian depiction, you are therefore sort of rejecting the viability and the truthfulness of the Torah being given to the Jewish people because that Aristotelian model states that a god uh, of Aristotle could not possibly volitionally insert himself into time and space and present the Torah to the Jewish people. And furthermore, uh, uh, you're going to be uh, have, have a completely distorted view, view of God and a, a, certainly a providential God. And that's, that's something you have to be very careful about. He says, be therefore always suspicious in your mind as to this point. Never completely trust yourself. Constantly check and recheck yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and saying, am I being totally objective or am I being driven by my desire? And number two, accept the authority of the two prophets who are the pillars of the well-being of the human species with regard to its beliefs and its associations. And here the Rambam is departing from what he said in chapter 22. He originally said, I'm not relying at all on the authority of Torah to argue that creation is a more sound model of what exists in the celestial realm and how it got here. But here the Rambam says, because you can't all you can't fully trust your intellect to make these decisions you have no choice but to rely on the authority of the torah the two prophets being avraham first who arrived at a conclusion about god on his own and moshe who experienced experienced completely perfect prophecy and gave us the torah which contains the depiction of creation in other words here the rambam does concede that at some point in, uh, you may feel that you just throw up your hands in despair and say to yourself, how am I ever going to know if, I'm a, if I've arrived at the truth if I may be uh, uh, being swayed un unconsciously by my emotions and by, by my desires? And therefore he says, in that case, if you really can't find complete objectivity, then at least you can rely on the, on the reliable tradition of the Torah of Avraham and the Torah of Moshe, and, and the reason is, he says, they are pillars of the well-being of the human species. You know that they provided to mankind the greatest gift in the laws of the Torah and its associations and mankind's ability to coalesce into societies. Do not turn away from the opinion according to which the world is new, except because of a demonstration. In other words, the fact that we believe from the Torah's depiction that the world was brought into being anew through an act of creation is something that you should never depart from, no matter how convincing you may think the Aristotelian argument is, unless someone can actually prove it. And when he says demonstration, he means using philosophical proofs. And the reason why the Rambam says, if someone can philosophically prove it, then you have permission to follow them, he says, because such a demonstration does not exist in nature. And it's because of the things that he said up until now, which is no human being has access to the celestial realm to be able to absolutely prove this argument of Aristotle versus the argument of creation. Furthermore, the student of this treatise should not engage in criticizing me 
because of my using this mode of speech in order to support the affirmation of the newness of the world. And here the Rambam is sort of take, put, put himself on the defensive. He says, I know that what I've just told you is not typical of what you would expect from me, the, the Maimonidean philosopher. As a philosopher, I always have told you that you should follow your intellect and make sure that things are intellectually sound and do not rely on the authority of the Torah as the final arbiter. Don't criticize me for telling you now that you should rely, and my using this preachy kind of um, uh, uh, rely on the authority of the Torah, uh, because you can never know for sure if your intellect is arriving at truth. Because the reason I feel justified in doing that is because Aristotle, the prince of the philosophers, in his main writings, has likewise used rhetorical speeches in support of his opinion that the world is eternal. In other words, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If Aristotle could do it, then I can do it too. Now, what is the Rambam referring to when he says that Aristotle also said that we have uh, other ancient peoples who gave us this tradition that the world has existed eternally. Well, if you look at the very end of chapter 14 of this section, we did it just several weeks ago, I'm going to read to you from the Friedlander translation. He says, the following method, it's the very end of chapter 14, where the Rambam had presented eight arguments that are brought by Aristotelian philosophers to defend Aristotle's theory of the eternality of the universe. And the very last of those arguments, the eighth argument, is based on the circumstance that the theory implies a belief which is so common to all peoples and ages, and so universal that it, that it appears to express a real fact and not merely an hypothesis. Aristotle says that all people have evidently believed in the permanency and stability of the heavens, Aristotle said that all of the ancient civilizations that he studied believed that the heavens are eternal, and that's the reason why God chooses to reside in the heavens, because of their eternal nature. Because after all, God is eternal, and so for he, therefore he chooses a residence which is also eternal. That, says Aristotle, proves my point, not only philosophically, but also historically that I can show you that based on the authority of ancient cultures and civilizations who believe this, what I'm telling you must be true as well. He says, in such cases, we go back to our text, it may truly be said, and here the Rambam is quoting from a portion of Talmud in Tractate Bava Batra, shall not our perfect Torah be worth as much as their frivolous talk. Again, what the Rambam means to say is, if Aristotle can do it, you see that he's not completely relying on the intellectual arguments, then I can do it as well. If he refers in support of his opinion to the ravings of the Sabaeans, which is an ancient civilization, how can we but refer in support of our opinions, opinion to the words of Moshe and Avraham and to everything that follows therefrom? This concludes the Rambam's argumentation of, or the theme of this chapter, which is, these are the things that you need in order to arrive at truth. Make sure that, number one, you've studied logic and you know how to think carefully. Number two, make sure that you know you have a proper working knowledge of scientific reality um, and make sure that it's a correct model of science and not an erroneous model of science based on bad science. And number three, make sure your morals are in check so that you're not driven by your emotions. And if you find that you cannot be completely objective, 
then you must, you have no choice but to rely on the authority of the Holy Torah that was given to our people and contains within it the prophecies that come directly from God, which depict the universe as having been created ex nihilo from nothing. The last paragraph of this chapter is where the Rambam basically says, I'm now going to return to my discussion of Aristotle's depiction of an eternal universe that emanates necessarily from a perfect God. I promised you, and this is back in chapter 19, a chapter in which I will expound to you the grave doubts that would affect whoever thinks that man has acquired knowledge as to the arrangement of the motions of the sphere and as to there being natural things going on according to the law of necessity, things whose order and arrangement are clear. Now, if you do believe that, if you, if you feel that you can look at the cosmos and all of the celestial bodies, the stars, the spheres, the planets, and you can say, oh, I now understand why everything moves in the way that it does and everything is structured in the way that it is because it necessarily emanates from a perfect God, there are very grave problems with that. And I'm going to present that to you in the next chapter. I shall now explain this to you. So this is what sort of the preview of what chapter 24 will be about. I hope that I've explained this chapter well because I already did this twice already, and I hope we're able to capture the recording this time. All right, looking forward to studying chapter 24 with you next time. We will meet in two weeks uh, because next week, for those of us who are in Chutz La'aretz, will still be Shavuot. So we will resume a week from this Monday. Chag Sameach to, to, to you all and thank you.